In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today joins me in this two-part series. Frank Loy has served in the Department of State in three administrations. He served as Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs in the second administration of President Clinton. His portfolio included developing U.S. international policy and conducting negotiations in the fields of the environment, climate change, human rights, the promotion of democracy, refugees, and humanitarian affairs, and counter-narcotics. Under President Carter, he was director of the Bureau of Refugee Programs, with the personal rank of ambassador, and in the Johnson administration, served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Affairs. During 2007 and 2008, he served on the Obama campaign as a co-leader of the Energy and Environment Team and a member of the National Finance Committee. He spent some 10 years in the business sector, first as Senior Vice President of Pan American Airways, responsible for securing for Pan American from both foreign governments and the United States the operating rights for its airline and hotel operations. He also directed Pan Am's extensive technical assistance programs and subsequently became a founding partner of the firm that brought the bankrupt Penn Central Transportation Company out of bankruptcy and then became president of the New York Stock Exchange listed company that emerged from that bankruptcy. From 1981 to 1995 he served as president of the German Marshall Fund of the U.S., an American foundation focused on U.S., European political, economic, and environmental relations. Following the fall of the Berlin War, the German Marshall Fund focused the majority of its efforts on promoting democratic institutions in the former Soviet bloc Eastern European countries. Over the years, he served on numerous corporate boards, including Madison Square Garden, Pharmaceutical Product Development, Applied Bioscience, Buckeye Pipeline, and he's chaired many boards of not-for-profit organizations, including Goddard College, the League of Conservation Voters. He also taught a course in environmental law and policy at the Yale Law School and Forestry School. At present, he serves on the boards of numerous non-profit organizations. In the field of the environment, these include Resources for the Future, Environmental Defense Fund, the Nature Conservancy, the Pew Center for Global Climate Change, and Eco-America. And in addition, he chairs the Boards of Population Services International and the Arthur Burns Fellowship Program, and serves on the Boards of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies and the Washington Ballet. He was recently decorated and recipient of Germany's highest civilian award. He's a graduate of UCLA and the Harvard Law School, lives in Washington with his wife, Dale a painter, and has two children and four grandchildren. Frank Loy. 
Welcome to In Discussion, and it's a great privilege to have Frank Loy joining me today. Welcome to you. I'm happy to be here. I'm very excited about traveling and taking this journey with you. Could we start in your earlier years, your memories of life in Switzerland, Italy, and Germany, your recollections of that period? Well, my recollections are really quite happy considering that they are uh, of a period in which uh, quite a few bad things actually happened in my family. Um, I was born in Germany and my first memories are of uh, living uh, in the countryside in a small village uh, south of Munich and where my father had built his, I think his dream house and uh, was retiring there. And I think we were uh, rather well-off, middle-class uh, German burghers living fairly good life when uh, the specter of Hitler uh, arose. And my parents were Jewish. They were totally unreligious. We never entered a synagogue or celebrated a religious uh, holiday. Our, our celebration was Christmas. But by Hitler's standards, we were Jewish. And uh, relatively shortly after moving to this uh, place in the country, our family had to uh, really take steps to leave. And at the age of seven, I was uh, sent to boarding school in Switzerland. My brother was sent to another boarding school in Switzerland. And my father made arrangements to leave Germany, which was difficult and certainly reduced uh, our family economic status enormously because you basically had to leave uh, most of your assets behind. What about the effects on your parents? Do you remember the fear of the Nazi movement? Looking back on it, do you wonder now how that affected them personally. It must have been a traumatic time, as it was for many. Well, I don't remember the fear. I think uh, we were shielded. Uh, I was shielded quite effectively, really, from all of that. And, and I did leave in 1936, so that was not early, but it was, it was not late either. But my father was an intensely proud and loyal German. Uh, he had been a an officer in World War One in the German army. My mother's father was a very senior judge, an appellate judge at the top court in the land of Bavaria. And b both sides of our family were very German. And so the notion that this country that they, they had lived in for, well, certainly until the mid-1700s, that's as far as my records go. I don't know how long the family had actually lived in the area of Nuremberg where they were born and where I was born. The notion that this country was all of a sudden going from a constitutional republic to a dictatorship, and I know it uh, affected them deeply. I often wonder, looking back at that era, how much of a shock it was, given that generation had only just departed from the horrors of the First World War. Could it be seen very clearly 
that evolvement, that emergence of the Nazi regime? How did that emerge in society, particularly in countries like Austria? Well, in, in Germany, there was, of course, following the First World War, there was the Weimar Republic. It was always a fragile body, uh, in part because... It grew up at the same time as uh, the Soviet Union, and the specter of communism, while I don't think particularly real, uh, was used by right-wing groups to, I think, uh, frighten a lot of Germans. And as a result of that, the constitutional president of Germany just handed over kind of the reins of government to the Nazi party in 1933. And at that time, you could not tell, at least I'm, I'm, I'm not a big student of this, but I don't think you could tell whether it would be just a party in a, in a sense of a democratic uh, state where parties sometimes get voted in and sometimes out, or whether it would be the beginning of a dictatorship. It, of course, proved the latter. When you were relocated to Switzerland. Did you feel safe and secure? Yeah, I felt uh, quite secure, but, uh, you know, I was seven years old and I was suddenly uh, removed from my parents, and so I think I probably may have been somewhat lonely. I went to a boarding school, a, a Catholic boarding school in kind of a almost in an enormously picturesque uh, little village in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. You know, it was a very, it was a very secure, nice place, but, uh, you know, I was separated from my brothers and my family, and I can't imagine that was all that uh, simple, although I, I don't really have any, I don't think I have any trauma from that experience. You moved to the United States with your parents, how did your parents feel? Was there a bitterness at that departure as to having to leave Germany, ultimately? Well, we came to the United States in February of 1939. And when I say we, that did not include my mother, because my mother died while I was in Switzerland. The people that moved to um, the States were my father and my two brothers and I. And there was virtually no bitterness and virtually no sadness. It is kind of amazing, and it is an enormous tribute to my father, who was one of the most positive persons I've ever known in terms of his outlook on life. And he was positive despite, uh, at this moment, I have to add one more thing about my father. My father, who had been a very athletic young man and, uh, and sort of a rich young man, and, uh, and, you know, all of a sudden he went sort of from 1928 when I was born to almost at the same time he, both of his legs had to be amputated because of a medical malpractice so that between 1928 and 1939 he lost his legs, he lost his wife, he lost his fortune, and he lost his country. And yet I have to say that I cannot remember a moment when he was anything but up, cheerful, joking, optimistic. Quite a remarkable performance. This defines 
Would you agree, and certainly in the way that I chart history, particularly around that time, a generation that really was used to perseverance, a determination. You saw that uh, in the following six or seven years. You saw it in places like London during the Blitz. It was an incredible generation. It was. You studied at the University of California. At Los Angeles, right. That must have been quite a change in culture. How did you work with that change of culture? Did it seem, looking back, as if it was so very different to what you had been used to in Europe, or was it something that you settled into fairly quickly? I don't think it was very difficult, and maybe for some specific reasons. Shortly after arriving in Los Angeles, where we settled in 1939, the next year my father died. And my family then made a decision which may seem strange in some ways, but uh, I think was a very good one. And that is that I would not be brought up, and my brother would not be brought up by uh, family members. We, I had uh, maternal grandparents in Los Angeles at that time, and an uncle in Chicago, and so forth. But the family would hire an American woman to sort of be our housekeeper and raise me and my brother. So I grew up in a very American fashion, and almost from the time, let's say, I was uh, in late grammar school, I think the fact that I had, was, uh, had recently come, to, or relatively recently come to the United States, was no longer a factor in the outlook I had on life. Even at that young age? Especially, I would say, at that young age. Uh, I think that kind of ability to adjust in, to new circumstances is probably easier at that age than it would have been 15 years later. Were you in any way suffering from homesickness at that stage, or were you too young or, and, and too busy to consider that? I think I was too young and too busy. I don't remember that, no. I, you know, like all children and adolescents, I was very preoccupied with my life and my friends and my social circle and, and all that stuff, and homesickness was not a characteristic that I would describe to me in that time. You then uh, moved on to Harvard, a changing academic environment. Could you tell me, what were the differences between the university in Los Angeles and Harvard? They must have been quite contrasting. Well, it was. And maybe it is, it's important, this wasn't just Harvard, this was the Harvard Law School, and I think in several respects that's what made the change so substantial. Uh, at UCLA, I was a good enough student. I did quite well. I, did, I was not outstanding by any means. I did not feel very competitive, and I didn't feel pressed by my fellow students. At Harvard, I all of a sudden found myself in a milieu that... Uh, Many of my fellow students had been in intensely competitive situations, really from the time of grammar school. I mean, they had been competitive to get into the right kind of schools. They had been competitive to get into the right kind of high schools and the right kind of colleges and the right kind of law schools. And I had sort of sailed through that period without that sense of competition. 
And all of a sudden, I found myself with a really dedicated, smart, aggressive group of fellow students. That was a bit of a culture shock. And uh, that first year particularly, and maybe only the first year, uh, was a year in which I really felt pressed all the time to work and work more. Do you have any particular memories of how you had to adapt to that changing approach? Well, mostly by living something of a monastic life, I would say, where, you know, it was a big deal to go to the movies on Saturday night. Uh, and some of my colleagues, many of them reacted the same way to the law school. Uh, one of my classmates was uh, an, in fact, fellow that I lived in the, I lived in the same part of the dorm with for a year was uh, uh, Senator Thomas Eagleton. And I think Tom was probably somewhat smarter than I was. In any event, he I always admired him because he was able to get through law school without the slightest, without breaking a sweat, it sounded like to me. And I was sweating all the time. I, I was very envious of that. But there were quite a few others who were in the same boat as I was. Do you think, looking back now, that law is approached very differently in academia? No, I think the subject matter has changed somewhat, but a good law school, I think, will, in many respects, uh, contribute to the capacity and the knowledge of, of its students pretty much the way it did when I went to law school, which means an important part that if you are a good student, you really think differently at the end, significantly differently than you did when you entered the school. You came out of Harvard and spent time in the U.S. Army, but prior to that, had you already made up your mind as into the particular areas of law that you would like to go into? Yes, I had. I wanted to be... Uh, I, I didn't want to be a litigator. That didn't interest me much to go to court. What I wanted to be was a counselor to businessmen, a counselor to industrialists, somebody who when important business decisions were made, they'd say, well, let's ask uh, Frank what he thinks. That I thought I could do that, and also it probably stroked my ego. And the U.S. Army, was there any particular reason going into the Army rather than any other branch of the forces? Yes, very simple. I was drafted, and at that time, I believe it's correct that only the Army was drafting, and the others were volunteer services. Shortly after uh, going into the Army, or being drafted, uh, I actually uh, w received the offer of going to the Judge Advocate General's course and becoming an officer. But that would have added about 15 or 18 months to my military service, and by that time, I, that didn't seem to me to make much sense, and so I didn't do that. So I was an enlisted man during the entire time. And in, a, in one way, it was an, really an important experience for me, and that is I was probably um, an average of maybe five or six years older, maybe even seven in some cases, than my colleagues in the Army, uh, most of whom were just out of high school, and I'd been to both college and law school. And so I was different from most of them. And they were unduly impressed with all this, the, the, my learning, or at least all my studies. I was impressed with their practical ability and their ability to 
get things done, and uh, I was determined to become accepted by them. And so I think I learned a lot of people skills in that very strange environment, which is the early days of the military. Was there any reluctance at that stage to go into the services on looking back on it? You know, I wouldn't have volunteered, but I sort of thought it would be be an experience where I'd get something out of it. But I certainly would not have volunteered if that had been my choice. How do you look back on the 60s and the Vietnam conflict now? It was a very difficult period for the United States. Are there any particular areas that you think that one could have been better in maybe even getting out of the conflict faster than we did? Well, it was a brutal and in many respects unpleasant period from a political point of view and from a from living in Washington point of view. During the years from the very, very end of the Kennedy administration through the Johnson administration, I was uh, in Washington and most of the time serving in the Department of State at a time when the Department of State was an active participant in all of the plans for and diplomacy for uh, the war. And it seemed to me at the time the war was a mistake. There was one very senior person in the State Department uh, under Secretary George Ball, who who was constantly in the inner circles of government uh, making that point, but was very much overruled by President Johnson. You know, I am not by nature somebody who goes out into the streets easily and uh, demonstrates, so that I, of course, couldn't have done that because I was in the government. And I thought that those demonstrations, you know, were frequently pretty ugly, and in part because they were conducted by, you know, pretty scruffy types who I thought, while they made a very valid point, a point with which substantively I agreed, I thought the way they went about it, they also scared the hell out of uh, a lot of uh, Americans and moved them to the other side. So I was never very happy with that part of the uh, anti-war demonstrations and contrasted that somewhat with the civil rights issues that had started somewhat earlier and the civil rights demonstrations, which I thought were extraordinarily dignified most of the time, in which those that sought to change the status quo were the more dignified than the ones who tried to uphold it. There's no doubt about it. It was representing an extraordinary time in history for this country. You went on into the Federal Aviation Administration as an assistant to the administrator. I'm more interested with that uh, because a lot of my research is based around the awful events of September the 11th, 2001. How do you see the administration then when you were working in it compared to the administration in the aftermath what were the apparent changes that you saw, both having been inside the organization and then perhaps being a spectator? Well, the closer comparison, perhaps, is with the hijacking problems that arose actually a little later, in the, maybe in the 65, 66 period, when I was in the State Department, but aviation was part of my portfolio, and one of my jobs was to see how one could negotiate an international agreement that would deal with hijacking, and particularly deal with hijacking by requiring 
the countries to which a hijacker, uh, we call them skyjackers at the time, uh, would take an aircraft and require the country that received him to either try him criminally or send him back to the country of origin to be tried there. That was my job. That sounds rather easy, because why not? But actually it turned out to be rather complicated for us because a number of the hijackings involved Cuba and involved Cubans hijacking an aircraft and the notion of sending a Cuban hijacker who wanted to escape Cuba back to um, Cuba or trying him as a uh, criminal, which seemed to me one of those two things ought to happen, uh, was politically rather difficult because of the strong Cuban interest group and Cuban uh, groups, particularly in the state of Florida. So it was a more complicated issue than it should have been in some ways. But we addressed it and and adopted quite sensible um, provision on that. And we began the the, the process of uh, searching passengers. I thought we reacted pretty well then, and I thought the administrations have reacted generally pretty well to 9-11 in terms of aviation. It makes air transport a little less attractive and a little little more time-consuming, but I don't know what else uh, one might do. I'm particularly interested in that period with Intelsat, which I've looked at so often in the past, an incredible organization. What was your interest in working with that organization then? Well, I didn't work with the organization. What I did was spend about three years or so negotiating the agreement, two agreements really, among the first agreement among governments that uh, set up a governing structure for Intelsat, and then the second, an agreement among what we called entities, most of which in Europe and the rest of the world were the postal services, uh, because that included postal and telecommunications. In the United States, it, the our entity was a special uh, company that had been chartered by Congress called ComSat, and their job was to actually run the space segment of the satellite communications network, which was just then being born. And it was unusual in the sense that international agreements among governments usually dealt with standards and set criteria and made some rules and so forth. And this one did that too, but the purpose of this one was to create an organization that actually operated like a business and had to charge customers and deliver reliable services at a decent price and that was a new kind of international agreement for governments to enter into. And so we were, we were really dealing with a whole new set of problems, and that's one of the reasons it took so long. Also, of course, like in many international agreements, countries had different interests, efficiency and making sure that new discoveries and new improvements would be adopted quickly. Some other European countries who didn't have the capacity to either launch or build satellites were interested in 
getting their hands on some of the technology, very understandable, very reasonable. Uh, many of the developing countries were interested in making sure that they would have service because they were afraid that we were too profit-oriented, that we would only serve countries that had a lot of traffic, and we wouldn't serve a Mali or a Niger that had a, a little traffic and would probably be difficult to serve it economically. Those were difficult issues to resolve, and that's why it took so long. They were, however, very exciting times, were they not? Very exciting times. It was, you know, intellectually interesting, and it involved a lot of diplomacy, and it seemed to me to, if we did it right, it would create something that would last a long time, and indeed it has. You worked between the private sector and, and as a public servant. You worked as senior vice president for Pan American World Airways. That must have been a great benefit to you, being able to work between those two different types of entities and, and the thought processes that come with it. How did Pan American World Airways appear to you back in those days, especially before deregulation? Was that an area that had great interest for you? Well, yes and no. I mean, I had worked for the Federal Aviation Agency, not that I knew much about aviation at that time. I knew almost nothing about it, but I worked dealing with the Washington kind of issues that arise in an agency. And then I'd worked in the State Department where aviation was a, was a significant part of my portfolio, a significant part of my job uh, on aviation issues for about five years. So I knew something about international aviation, and in that sense I was probably a quite logical selection for this job at what was then by far, by far, our biggest international airline. And at that time, Pan Am was kind of a, a wonderful organization. And if you were a passenger and you were in Delhi and uh, or you were in uh, Monrovia, Liberia, and saw that airplane with that blue ball on its tail come in and it was going to take you out, you felt kind of safe and comfortable and at home. It was quite an airline uh, in those days, and it was uh, fun to work for. And I had a great job, and I loved it. I loved everything about it, except you couldn't really earn a lot of money. How did you feel uh, the demise of this airline? It was very iconic. It was an institution. How did you feel about that when it started to tumble? Well, I felt I felt bad from a nostalgic point of view and a uh, personal point of view. It was a little bit a combination of inevitability and some, I think, some management mistakes. But the inevitability arose because the, the original idea of Pan American, which never came into really full fruition, but it came into partial fruition, was that it would be as Juan Tripp, its founder, called it, the chosen instrument of the U.S. And it would serve from New York and from San Francisco and Los Angeles and so forth. It would serve overseas. And the domestic American lines would feed it. And the government, including the time that I was in the government, but also before, decided that that 
concept of a single U.S. carrier, which would be the, quote, chosen instrument, was not a sound concept. And so it started to give rights to license American Airlines and United Airlines and others to fly overseas. And, of course, they all had domestic routes which would feed their overseas routes. And so the fact that Pan American did not have that was a big competitive disadvantage. I always wonder, looking at the Virgin Airways, British Airways, American, whether in some way they were trying to replicate Pan American, but I'm sure that it was an impossible task. I think governments would not permit that, uh, including the British government, I think. I don't know whether the, their policies are right or wrong, but I I think the era of sort of national quasi-monopoly carriers is over. You served a short time in the State Department's director and in the Bureau of the Refugee Program. Any particular memories that strike you, thoughts of the then-President Jimmy Carter? Yes, we're talking about the years 79-80. Yeah, I have very uh, action-filled and somewhat tension-filled uh, period, actually, and I have pretty clear memories of that. The most dramatic memory is perhaps uh, the Marielle boat lift, as it's called, in 1980, when Fidel Castro permitted the departure or forced the departure of 125,000 Cubans in a three-week period in small boats coming across to Florida. Well, I mean, given the absence of any diplomatic relations of, of, of any use at that time with Cuba, and given the notion of 125,000 people arriving on your shores whom you don't know, whom you, you have not processed, whose identity you don't know. That was a period of intense chaos and no idea when this flow would stop. And it was also characterized by a dramatic change in policy very early on when President Carter, whose initial reaction was, we can't allow this kind of arrival without any kind of process, so let's stop these boats, let's all welcome these uh, arrivals. That was a confusing period, and certainly in, in that sense the most memorable. But other parts of that period were also memorable. I mean, um, that was the time when the American-backed Mujahideen in Afghanistan were fighting against the Russians, and we backed them. And in that war, a lot of Afghans ended up in Pakistan, in camps in Pakistan. I remember going to Pakistan a number of times and going to these camps and trying to figure out how this particular scenario would end and whether these people could go back and when and under what circumstance. And they were very unhappy, as you know, as anybody living in tents in a refugee camp would be. Those were very dramatic times. And then... I remember a lot of efforts to deal with uh, Cambodian refugees, largely from the terrible uh, problems in Cambodia that were either during the Khmer Rouge period or that were the, caused by the Khmer Rouge period. Those people were in Thailand, those refugees, and the Thais wanted to send them back. They were afraid they were going to 
destabilized Thailand, sending them back would have meant sending them to their death. It was a very tough period of very large refugee populations living in, in different refugee camps. And all that time, we were bringing in huge numbers of refugees, technically refugees, people that have been processed by us, including 168,000 from Vietnam, a little bit from Laos, but almost all from Vietnam. Well, that's a huge logistic issue. And, and one of the things about, one of the reasons I was in that job was that it required a lot of management of a huge budget from a very small part of the State Department. And a lot of State Department Foreign Service officers had never had that kind of management responsibility. And it would be hard for them to carry that out. The Haiti crisis has the potential to repeat this, perhaps. How do you view the situation in Haiti? It really is a dreadful situation so close to our shores. Well, it's as sad a country as you can imagine, as you pointed out, really. But uh, the answer cannot be, I think, uh, simply uh, accepting an unlimited uh, number of Haitians in the United States. I don't think that's the way, in, in the larger picture, the United States can resolve many of the problems around the world. I do think Haiti needs a lot of external help. A lot of it will come, should come, must come from the U.S. But it is a country that has been misruled for so long, suffered enormous environmental damage. I remember in the um, presentation by Al Gore of An Inconvenient Truth, he has a photo of a riverbed with steep banks on the sides and one side is lush and with full of trees and planting and the other side is like a moonscape and the first side is the Dominican Republic and the second side is Haiti and his point is you know in environment politics matters and it does and the politics of Haiti have been awful, and one of the things that is meant is that they've cut down all their trees and they have despoiled a large part of their land. So they have real fundamental problems in trying to eke out a living in that island. And that was so even before the tragedy of the earthquake and subsequent tragedies. As we come to the end of this first program in our two-program series, I would love to get your thoughts on that period from the 1950s up to present. I look at the 1950s as very much the decade of the Cold War and the fear that came with that and the 60s as the years of the lust and that movement, the 70s, 80s and 90s as the increasing manipulation almost for the, the corporate ideal. How do you look at those decades and the way that they have evolved in American culture? Ooh, that's a, that's a big uh, assignment here. Well, I think several important changes have taken place. Certainly, the era of staying out of other people's affairs, the era of isolationism is over. And that was, I think, uh, the product of World War II, but it came to its fullest during the Cold War when it was a confrontation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. 
uh, with the end of the Cold War, in many, in some respects, things got less tense. We haven't talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I mean, there were times in uh, the period you're talking about when there was real and justified fear of a nuclear exchange. I mean, that's we don't have that fear at the moment, rightly or wrongly, but we don't have it. That's a big difference. But we have something a lot more complex, I think, and that is we have an era where enemies are not organized nations but are non-state actors, and we have an era where enemies are not military at all but are environmental, like our changing climate. And those are really complex. They don't have the simplicity of, here's the enemy, and let's deal with them because the enemy is subtler group of people or not people at all but it's environmental consequences of people and our ability to to deal with that is i think being tested as we speak i will look forward to continuing this conversation it has been an absolute pleasure joining you today in this first of our two programs i do thank you so much i enjoyed it And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Com.